Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Donna Morris, Bill Sweat. We're at Winderly Vineyard and Winery in Dundee. It's July 18th, 2018. And we'll start you guys off by asking, why wine? I'll let you start. Why wine? Um, you know, I, wine was a big part of our story. Bill and I met um, in Boston in about 1982. And uh, our very first dates were walking around the north end of Boston and Beacon Hill, uh, visiting little wine shops and determining how we were going to spend our $5 that we had allotted uh, to a wine purchase or to a beverage for dinner that night. So wine, wine was just sort of always there. <laughs> What's your recollection? Yeah, too. We um, kind of fell in with a group of people who were learning about wine. And um, so we just kind of started this journey with them. Uh, and as Donna said, we were really fortunate that there were a number of really good wine shops around us. Um, the interesting thing, that, to me anyway, is that in those days it was very intimidating like, mm -hmm. to go into these wine shops. In a lot of ways you felt like you weren't smart enough to be there if you didn't really understand everything about, about wine. Um, and there were definitely some of those shops uh, that were in existence at the time. But there were also some that were incredibly helpful. Um, I have this great memory of a wine shop in Boston uh, in my neighborhood in the North End. And the salesperson there spent, felt like an hour um, explaining to me how Amarone is made. Um, and so you're, he probably didn't get much of a sale out of it and <laughs> probably forgot about it the next day. But I still remember it, you know, 40 years later. So it's a, it was an important milepost mile in our yeah. travels. And food was always really important. I uh, come from a family where um, you spend hours around the dinner table and preparing food. And, um, you know, wine was a, a part of uh, that experience as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and my, actually, I, you know, think back now and I laugh that even my, my, my first alcohol of choice, uh, even as a very young person, was probably wine <laughs> over beer or other libations. So, um. yeah, she was very odd done. <laughs> very odd done yeah. for that period. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, definitely no wine in my family. And my first wine experiences were horrifically bad uh, <laughs> wines, most likely consumed out of the bottle. Um, and, um, I, uh, I do not endorse that for future generations, <laughs> but it um, uh, definitely did not come up uh, in a fine wine world. But cans are now readily available and a yeah, much finer true. choice for... If only we had had cans. For it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would have been so much better. Was there a particular wine or particular style of wine that kind of was like, oh, this is it, this is what I want to drink or what I want to make? I think not originally. Um, we. We somewhat put ourselves in the hands of the people that owned the shops or worked in the shops that we were visiting and, um, and just kind of started learning. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we, a lot of the wines we started out with were from California. Um, I just got an email from two club members of ours the other night and they're in Solvang 
and they were looking for a place to visit. And one of the places I sent them was the really big wine, well, it's the big winery compared to Oregon wineries, called Zaka Mesa. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still make really nice wines, but it was one of the first wines that Don and I were introduced to. So, you know, for us, it was like, well, check this place out, because they kind of, uh, they have a connect, we have a connection with them, <laughs> at least in terms of how we learned about wines. Um, and then from there, we, we probably started learning about Bordeaux, and then, uh, because I lived in the North End, and Donna lived in the North End for a while, uh, which was the Italian section at the time, um, the Italian neighborhood in Boston. Um, we started learning about Italian mm-hmm. wines. And eventually we found our way to Burgundy um, over probably a decade of, <laughs> of learning. And then it was all over. It was all over, yeah. So, there. yeah. so what made you, how did you get here? How did you get from I like wine, I'm living in Boston, I drink, this is great wine, to living in Oregon and owning a winery? You know, a, a lot of it was... Um, uh, serendipity. Um, uh, I always, when I think back as to how we got here, uh, a lot of it had to do with the fact that we didn't have children. And so Bill and I will be married 34 years in September. Um, and probably about 20 years ago, we figured out that children were not in the cards for us. And so it just gave us a lot more freedom in terms of deciding where to move, what to do, uh, what kind of jobs we had Mm -hmm. to have. Um, And so in the late 90s, um, we actually had an opportunity to go to Japan uh, for our jobs for a few years. And when we went there, it was sort of a big... a big change in our lives. So we started to get really adult. We got, it was the first time we got our wills in order. And um, even though we worked in financial services our entire lives, it was the first time we sat down and really mapped out what a financial plan would look like for us going forward and sort of where we were at that point and where we wanted to be in the next 10 years. And as part of that exercise, we determined that at some point we'd probably like to leave the corporate world and um, start a business of our own. Mm-hmm. And um, it, then it was over the next four or five years that we started to talk about what kind of business we might like to do together. And what we decided was we wanted to grow grapes and we wanted to make wine. So that's how the decision to make mm-hmm. wine really happened. And how Oregon happened was Pinot Noir had become our absolute go-to favorite uh, grape variety. And our favorite American Pinots were coming from Oregon. Mm -hmm. So it was almost as simple as that. Um, So starting in about 2004 and 2005, uh, we started to make many trips to Oregon um, to try to figure out what it is we liked about Oregon wine so much and to start to get smarter about um, how we would actually um, start a business here and um, where we wanted to be in Oregon mm-hmm. and how we wanted to build our business. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting path. Um, and, uh, but as Donna said, you know, we, we, we knew our favorite Pino, American Pinot Noirs were coming from Oregon, so we never looked anywhere else. And we just started to put the pieces together mm-hmm. after that. Um, and we we're very fortunate, you know, it was then and is today an incredibly collaborative industry. And so, you know, we could, we could visit as, you know, people from Boston thinking about getting into the wine industry and talk to anybody. We'd visit tasting rooms and we'd talk to the people who work there or the owners and, and ask questions and ask for help. And people were always very gracious and willing mm-hmm. to help us out. And so that was a big, that was a big part of it as well. You know, we got here and felt like 
this is the place we'd like to live. I had never been to Oregon before 2004 or 2005. And so when we first came out here to visit, part of it was to determine if this is a place we would like to live. Mm -hmm. And that was easy. I mean, <laughs> you know, who wouldn't want to live here? I mean, there's just, you know, Portland's so fabulous, the coast, the valley. Uh, the people, you know, it was a very easy transition uh, from a living perspective. Um, but we also wanted to gain a better understanding about what the business was like. And so Bill actually found this company called Vocation Vacations. <laughs> and um, interestingly enough, the company was founded in Portland. And um, what this business did is it provided real life work opportunities in a business that you might potentially be interested in starting or entering. That's really cool. Yeah, and so happily, one of the um, one of the careers uh, that was highlighted was um, uh, owning a winery. And so we we came out here in the summer of '05, and we were actually matched with um, a winery called Stone Wolf Winery uh, that was based in McMinnville. And we worked there for a week and we visited vineyards and we worked in the winery, bottling happened to be going on. So we were, we were pretty much the bottling crew for three days. We worked in the tasting room a couple of days. Um, and so that was another big part of our education. Uh, and the owner of Stone Wolf, uh, Linda Lindsay, Linda Lindsay, Linda Lindsay um, was actually is actually a very smart businesswoman and she was terrific in sort of opening up her books to us so it was also a really good way for us um, to really evaluate our business plan mm -hmm. um, against the reality of owning a winery mm -hmm. um, so that was hugely educational um, and the other thing that we always say was it wasn't um, a beautiful glamorous winery situation um, it was um, an urban winery mm -hmm. uh, in McMinnville um, we the first day we drove into the parking lot um, the winemaking team was sitting out front in plastic chairs, <laughs> having coffee and breakfast. Uh, there was no beautiful vineyard, there was no glam winery, um, but we really still liked the work. Mm -hmm. And we figured, okay, if we could, if we could like, um, if we could uh, really uh, learn learn from her and like this experience mm -hmm. uh, that is not at all glamorous, then but we were pretty comfortable that we could move forward and do this. It, yeah, I mean, for that reason, it was really perfect because yeah. it, it would have been so much, you know, if you come to a place and you're like, oh, look, it's the glamour of the wine industry, <laughs> of course you're going to fall in love with it, yeah. right? Um, but it was a very different experience. It was very practical and we're going to remove all the facades, you mm -hmm. know, in front of what this is and it's, here's what the work looks like, you know, and, and do you feel like committing yourself to that work? And so sure. that was great. And then we followed that with... Um, at the time, there was a business in San Francisco called Crushpad, and they allowed um, individuals to make um, a, you know, a barrel of wine. And so we had been kind of working with them to put together uh, winemaking protocols. And, and um, um, so immediately following the vocation vacation experience, we went to San Francisco and, and made wine, uh, made Pinot Noir crush pad from the Amber Ridge Vineyard in, um, in California. And that was, a, that was a great experience as well. And so we learned quite a lot along the way from those two, those two opportunities. So what made you choose this location? How did you find it? And what, what made this the spot? So part of the research that we had done is when 
we determined that our favorite American Pinots were coming from Oregon and specifically the Willamette Valley. Um, we went into our cellar and said, okay, what, what wines are we drinking? And so when we would come um, to Oregon, we would uh, really focus our attention and visit those wineries um, where we had been drinking their wines mm -hmm. for years. And we quickly figured out that most of the wines that we were drinking were coming either from the Dundee Hills or from Eola Amity. Mm -hmm. um, and so we sort of made a leap and said, okay, well, maybe it's the soils. You know, we really, you know, we really seem to like volcanic soils and the wines that are produced from uh, these two AVAs. So we focused our mm -hmm. uh, vineyard search primarily in the Dundee Hills and Eola Amity. And we were, you know, we were pretty open to either buying raw land and planting a vineyard um, or buying an established vineyard. So that's, this is where our search took us. And I don't know if you want to pick it up from there. Yeah, so we, we're big believers in serendipity. And um, so the, the really important piece of serendipity um, that we, uh, we had in our, our, our search was um, we were having a lot of difficulty finding the, the property that we wanted. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't really very much available in the Dundee Hills or the Ila Amity Hills at the time. And so um, after about a year, year and a half, we, we were still without a property. And, um, and so I started asking people, like, do you know someone who is selling fruit? And, um, and that was very difficult because we wanted to be make wine among the top tier wineries in Oregon, which meant we had to buy fruit from the best vineyards, and we didn't have any brand to speak of, right? And so, um, you know, if you're a grower um, and two people from Boston with no experience in the wine industry come to you and ask to buy fruit, um, you're going to give it a little bit of thought uh, before you make that decision. Um, but our um, attorney at the time, uh, well, still our attorneys, uh, at uh, Jeff Lyon at Davis Wright Tremaine, introduced us to one of his clients, Andy Humphrey. And uh, Andy sort of unwittingly became central to the story. Uh, so Andy at the time owned Anna Vineyard, which is right behind the property here. And he still uh, has a long-term lease on the Weber Vineyard, which is adjacent. And, um, and we, we buy fruit from him. Um, but Andy was the first person who agreed to sell us some fruit so we'd be able to make a, a wine in 2006, which is when we wanted to start. And so, um, so that was a, a big move. Um, and um, Andy also was farming this property. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, it was known as the Goldschmidt Vineyard. And uh, when it came on the market, he called me and said, hey, I think I found your vineyard. You need to get on a plane. And so three days later, we were here. And we were meeting with Neil and Diana Goldschmidt um, about this property. And um, spent a long time you know, negotiating the, all the details and whatever. Uh, we actually ended up buying the property after harvest. So we, in 2006, we have a Goldschmidt Vineyard Pinot Noir. It's not a Wendellie Vineyard Pinot Noir. Um, but um, this was our favorite vineyard in Oregon. Uh, so we did just happened to stumble upon it, you know, being on the market. And our second favorite vineyard in Oregon is the Arcus Vineyard, owned by Archery Summit, um, which is directly below us here. So we, we definitely landed in the right neighborhood. And then... Um, Andy was also farming the property that Robert Britton bought, and so he made the introduction to Robert, and Robert's been our, uh, our winemaker ever since. And so um, all of that kind of revolved around us meeting this one person um, and him making introductions to, to other important people in our, in our story. Sure. Pretty interesting to buy your vineyard from the former governor. I imagine that was an interesting process. 
Yeah, very interesting. Um, well, and, and Diana, she was the business person. <laughs> okay. So I would actually say that um, Diana probably drove most of the terms as being the business person um, in, in, in their relationship. So yeah, it was interesting. They were uh, terrific to work with mm -hmm. and um, you know, they, they loved and developed um, this vineyard for 10 years. The vineyard was actually uh, planted in the early 70s, however, by the Bauer family, by John and Sally Bauer. And that's probably a little bit more of an, an interesting story. Uh, John Bauer was a doctor in Lake Oswego who in the late 60s, when nothing was really happening, made the decision that he was going to you know, uproot his family from Lake Oswego out to Dundee. Um, and he wanted to grow and uh, grow a vineyard. So uh, he came out here and got to know Dick Erath and Jim Marsh, our next door neighbor, and they helped guide him through the process. And uh, when he planted the vineyard starting in 1974, he named the vineyard the Dundee Hills Vineyard. So that's another piece of uh, history here is mm -hmm. the original name of the vineyard was Dundee Hills Vineyard. Um, and the Bowers um, uh, owned it and developed it um, for almost, what, the first uh, 20, 25, yeah. over 25 years. Mm. Um, and then Neil and Diana bought the vineyard from them in 98. Um, and did some replanting because when the vineyard was planted originally in the 70s, the upper part of the vineyard was planted to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but the lower part of the vineyard was planted to Cabernet Merlot and Gamay. So people were clearly experimenting. Mm -hmm. um, but the lower part of the vineyard was pulled out uh, by Neil and Diana and then replanted to Pinot, so today it's all Pinot Noir. You had mentioned the collaboration in the industry, and of course that's a pretty common theme across our interviews. I'm curious, when you got here or when you were going through the process, were there other people who kind of reached out or stepped up to help you in the kind of initial process of getting here? Who would you say? Well, I mean, I think once we got here, um, we, uh, what was probably more important is if we reached out, people answered and then worked with us. So uh, <laughs> sure. I don't know that anyone reached out to us before we landed, um, but we were, we were definitely, um, uh, you know, very, um, outgoing in terms of picking the phone. I know there were some vineyards that we looked at um, that, you know, Bill would pick up the phone. I know you spent a lot of time on the phone with Josh Bergstrom because we were looking at a vineyard uh, where Josh had purchased a lot of fruit. Uh, who else? I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, folks. Uh, there's a, yeah, this one vineyard, um, Andrew Rich was buying fruit, buying fruit from. from. <laughs> and I called him as he was getting in his truck to go visit a vineyard he, he bought food from in Washington. And um, he put down the phone four hours later when he arrived <laughs> at that vineyard. And, um, so that, and that's an extreme you know, level of the generosity that, that people have, but, um, but I think also a great example mm -hmm. of how willing people were to help. So we were pretty shameless about it. You know, if we had a question, we would just pick up the phone and talk to someone. You know, we, um, uh, we talked to Todd Hamina, who was the winemaker at mm -hmm. Missar at, at the time, and um, certainly talked to Lynn Penarash and Patty Green and who bought fruit uh, so they they actually bought most of the fruit from this, from vineyard, this vineyard so they were uh, very knowledgeable yeah. about the vineyard here sure, yeah. you know Rob Stewart um, David you know, Adelsheim that team at Adelsheim has been yeah. incredibly helpful and so um, it, it you know it's such an interesting thing we, we really did shamelessly reach out to people and they very generously helped you know, it was a great experience sure 
You mentioned meeting Robert Britton and him becoming the winemaker here. Tell us a little bit about that kind of the meeting and the and how the relationship has developed. Oh yeah, that was phenomenal. So uh, neither one of us were interested in meeting each other at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Andy, Andy Humphrey actually put together a weekend where I think we met with ten winemakers, and Robert was one of them. And uh, we met for lunch at the bistro, and, and you know, as Donna said, so we went to the meeting thinking, why would we come to Oregon and hire a winemaker whose reputation was made in the Napa Valley? And Robert came to lunch thinking, why do I want to make wine for a couple of people from Boston who probably just want an ego brand? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, but we sat down for lunch, and um, one of the things we had with us was this you know, five or six page winemaking protocols questionnaire from Crushpad. And so that became kind of the basis for our conversation to talk about winemaking with Robert. And I think there were a couple of things that were really important in that discussion. One is we learned that Robert was really interested in making our wines. He wasn't interested in making a Britain wine with the Winderly label. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to make our wines. Um, and he understood that we were going to be full-time in the wine industry. We weren't going to be in Boston, mm. you know, leaving him out here all alone. Um, and so we both left that meeting thinking, oh yeah, this is the right match. Yeah. When you talk about um, making your wines, I'm curious if you can just sort of describe that a bit more, but you're talking about just sort of making the making wine that re represents your vineyard? Well, represents our, our kind of perspective on winemaking. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, we like really um, kind of uh, elegant, restrained, delicate wines that are kind of structured on, on acidity. And so, and we like um, a lower new oak um, component to the wines as well. And so, um, so I, you know, I think our Chardonnays are great examples for the first several years uh, we used exactly the same fruit in our Chardonnays. Um, and, um, as Rob did Britain, yeah. Yeah, it, as, as, as did Robert. Um, and, um, and those wines were completely different hmm. from one another. If, you if we were to both pull a 2006, 7, 8 Chardonnay, um, they're both really beautiful wines, but they're different wines. Interesting, mm. okay. So tell us about the name Winderly. Where did that come from? Oh, so Winderly comes from our East Coast roots. Um, Bill and I have owned a house in uh, Vermont, and uh, we bought it from a family who owned the house for, I don't know, 60 or 70 years, and they had named the house Winderly. And it's a made-up word combining wind and lee, meaning field or meadow. Mm -hmm. And we just thought it was a, a pretty word, an elegant word, a little lyrical. Um, and we thought it sort of fit the brand. Um, we decided we weren't going to name it after us, Sweat and Morris. There, we just didn't feel there was a lot of beauty mm -hmm. and um, elegance in those names related to a wine label. Mm -hmm. um, and we thought Winderly fit, and it was sort of a way to keep our, our sort of East Coast roots close, mm -hmm. close at hand. And uh, yeah. And it's, you know, it's always at the bottom of a list, and most people mispronounce it. Other than that, it, it works fine. It works oh, fine. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> So tell me a little about your roles in the winery and sort of day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year, how you have figured those out, if, you, if they are what you intended them to be when you started or how they've evolved. So we knew 
pretty much from the beginning um, what sort of the separation of duties would be. Um, most of my career, I worked in product development and marketing. Uh, so for me to take on the marketing and the sales uh, components seemed uh, very practical and in line with what I knew and what I did. Um, and Bill, your background had been primarily operations and service management uh, and process management. And I don't know, we decided that that seemed to align with vineyard and winemaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I and there's a lot of overlap. Obviously. And there is, you yeah. Know, it's um, uh, because, like most people who worked in service and operations, I'm absolutely convinced I'm a brilliant marketer. Um, and Everybody so, does. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, you know, frequently bombarding Donna with with ideas. Um, and conversely, Donna has a, a phenomenal palate, and so she's very involved in the winemaking decisions as well. And so, um, you know, it, it's. I think you don't start a business with your spouse thinking, oh, well, there are parts of the business I'm absolutely not going to be part of. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, so we do tend to engage each other in conversations about, um, about our different kind of areas of expertise mm -hmm. on a regular basis. I think it's not as greatest nightmare to be uh, on a long car ride with me because she can't escape <laughs> and um, and so I'm going to she knows I'm going to ask my 52 questions uh, during that car ride I'm curious you, you come, come from a background in marketing and sales I'm curious what was sort of the unexpected challenge of marketing Oregon wine when you got here whether was it what you expected or, or has it been different you know probably the biggest challenge has been uh, not being able to um, control inventory, mm -hmm. right? So Mother Nature either gives you a very generous harvest uh, or a not so generous harvest. So I would say probably in the first few years when, um, you know, when we expected um, our growth uh, of inventory to go from 500 cases to 1,000 to 2,000, you know, to sort of sequentially move along. That didn't happen because Mother Nature said, okay, you're gonna get a small vintage and then a really big one and then a super small one and then a really big one. Um, so that's probably been mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit of a challenge is sort of aligning our business plan with the realities of um, our annual harvest and our annual crop. Sure. That's probably the biggest. I mean, the second challenge was certainly, um, we opened up this tasting room in um, May of 08, so right into the recession. Um, that wasn't part of the plan. That was- uh, We did not adequately model a global recession. We did not. <laughs> we, did, we did model downturns. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. we were, Bill did a great job in modeling, you know, 25 and maybe 30% downturns, but we didn't model a global recession. Um, so that was sort of interesting thrown in to uh, really when we, when we launched the brand. And I, you know, I think the thing that was helpful for us when that happened is um, we both had spent a big chunk of our careers in direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so when we opened this tasting room, I, it was very natural for us. We both managed branches for brokerage companies. And so uh, it was very natural for us to think about, okay, we have this shop open, and what do we need to do to attract customers and, and, um, and, and work with them? So that was very helpful. Um, because at the time, distributors were shedding labels. They weren't looking for new labels mm -hmm. um, to add to the, um, to the system. Um, so this, I think you know, the three-tier system continues to be a challenge. Um, there's been an enormous amount of growth among wineries and enormous consolidation among distributors. Mm -hmm. um, so these numbers aren't 
exactly correct, I'm sure, but they're directionally correct. You know, we're 25 or 30 years ago, there were, you know, 2,000 American wineries and 3,000 distributors. Now there are 20,000 American wineries and 600 American distributors. Mm -hmm. And so that has really reshaped the way the industry works in a lot of ways. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, compliance in every state. Alcohol is a state-regulated mm -hmm. industry. And so how you sell wine in every state is unique. Um, so we do joke, you know, having come from the financial services industry, that, that we went from the second most regulated industry to the most regulated industry in this country. So fortunately, we had a big compliance background. So, so that we know how to do. Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would go. So we do. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Actually, we have, a, have always had somebody focused on compliance, so we wanted to make sure that we did not run afoul of any regulators. Sure. <laughs> so. It's interesting because the two biggest things we usually hear when we do these interviews are the biggest complaints are selling wine and dealing with the paperwork. Mm -hmm. So you guys were kind of out in front of that with your backgrounds. That's, the, <laughs> that's a good way to come in. Yeah, <laughs> because, because, yeah, because people, you know, again, people look at this industry as sort of the romance of growing grapes and making wine. Um, but underneath that, you still have to sell it. And mm -hmm. so this business has all of the same, you know, issues and, um, uh, you know, obstacles and opportunities of any other packaged goods mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. So you've got a product, you've got to get it distributed. There's all of these laws and regulations and practices that you have to learn and understand in order uh, to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so just producing a great bottle of wine is probably only about 25% mm -hmm. of, uh, of the challenge. Sure. It's all of those other things uh, that can get in, your, you know, get in your way of being successful. So why is it so important to you that Winderly be a sustainable winery? Wow. Um, I, you know, I think it's an ethos we've just always had, even, you know, on the East Coast, our, our little kitchen gardens were always organic, um, and we, we always cared about, um, about environmental practices. Um, you know, we, we grew up during an era where, the, you know, when the EPA was formed and when people were starting to get very aware of um, the impact of business on the environment. Uh, you know, we, there was the whole conversation about the ozone layer at the time, and solar was just starting to become mm -hmm. something people were thinking about. So it was part of the ethos we grew up with, and something we, we very much have internalized. Uh, you know, it's become very, very important to what we do. So when we came out here, we wanted to make sure that we, we created a winery that was built on that foundation. Um, so we, we immediately became uh, live certified, low input viticulture and enology. Um, and then in 2008, we started farming organic. And in 2009, we started farming biodynamic um, for this, our state vineyard. And then uh, in the winery, we use the biodynamic protocols on all the wines, whether the food comes from a biodynamic vineyard or mm. not. Um, so we use native yeast fermentations and just generally try to um, intervene as minimal, minimally as possible. Um, and then beyond that, we wanted to run a sustainable business. And so um, uh, several years ago, we pursued B Corp certification, uh, which is a sustainability uh, program for uh, your entire business. And their, their tagline is people using business as a force for good. 
Um, so uh, Rexhill A to Z was the first winery in the world to uh, get B Corp uh, certification and, um, and the first in Oregon, obviously. And then we were the second winery in Oregon to do that. And so, Along with Sokol Blosser. Yep. They were, you know, we both announced on Earth Day. And <laughs> Three years ago, I think, yeah. yeah. 2015. And yeah. So, um, so the, to become a B Corp, not, we not only have to farm sustainably and be sustainable in the winery, but we need to have um, good employee relations practices mm -hmm. and uh, good supplier relations and, um, and um, good philanthropic um, you know, practices, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's really looking at, at everything we do. Speaking of philanthropy, you have a, a relationship with Salud. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so we first, we were introduced to Salud um, in the fall of 2006. So the first couple of years we made wine, uh, we made it out in McMinnville at Corps de Terre Winery. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Scott and Lisa Neal um, uh, opened up their winery to Winderley, uh, to Britain, um, and, uh, and Raptor Ridge, so Scott and Annie Scholl. And so we were all out there for 06 and 07 making wine. And I remember um, in 06, um, the, uh, the Neals were uh, bringing in fruit from their vineyard and they had someone, uh, they, one of the uh, vineyard workers cut themselves badly uh, while harvesting. And um, I remember, you know, Annie Schull saying, okay, uh, you know, these are the clinics you can go to, you know, this is what you need to do, and um, this one particular clinic um, supported uh, Salud, which is the organization that provides healthcare services to Oregon's vineyard workers and their families. And so I remember asking Annie, like, tell me about, tell me about this Salud, you know, tell me about this organization. And so she told us a lot about it and said, oh, by the way, uh, Salud's annual fundraiser uh, is in November and you guys should buy tickets. And so uh, Bill and I bought tickets to Salud in November of 06 and sat with Scott and Annie, learned about um, the Vintner Circle and you know learned about the work and the mission of the organization. And it just really struck us that you know it was so unique and so important. And as Bill and I were um, you know, we had already moved to Oregon as we had been sort of thinking about um, where we wanted to focus um, uh, giving in the next stage of our lives. Salute sort of rose to the top because one of the things that we had always felt pretty um, passionate about was that um, we'd rather give to a few organizations and give meaningfully and be involved instead of sort of peanut buttering small amounts of money to anybody who calls and asks. So Salute, you know, became one of our probably our primary uh, philanthropic focus mm -hmm. um, when we got to Oregon. And so we learned about Salute, and so we learned that most of the money that, or pretty much all of the money that was being raised was being raised at this annual auction. And it was, um, we thought, well, that's great, but that's only 40 wineries, and there's a lot more wineries, so clearly there's got to be ways to get other, you know, to get more wineries to um, help fund Salute. So Bill and I thought about different ways that we could participate. So we were a brand new winery, no one knew us, or you know, there was no reason to bring us into the Vintner Circle. You know, you know, we hadn't even produced our first wine yet. So what we had decided was that when we opened up the tasting room that we would actually donate our tasting fees, uh, our tasting room fees to Salute. And so we went to Salute and we said we'd like to do this. And um, we then worked with uh, the Salute Steering Committee uh, over the next couple of years to see if we could reach out to a broader group of wineries to support Salute sort of beyond the Vintner Circle. 
um, and we started this program called the Compañeros de Salud. So for wineries that wanted to donate um, a weekend's tasting fees mm -hmm. or if they did a special event so that we could start to develop um, other sources of revenue for Salud other than the annual auction. So that's really where we became um, uh, quite involved. So from 2008 through about 2012, I guess, uh, we donated all of our tasting room fees to Salud. Wow. At that point, we started, um, we were, uh, we, we changed our business hours. We were now at the size where we needed to be open every day and we were open 12 months a year. And so what we do now is we make a monthly contribution to Salud um, that equates to what those early years 100% contribution looked like. So our tasting room fees still, that uh, a, a big chunk of it goes to support monthly monthly checks to Salud. Nothing else. Nothing <laughs> You mentioned the the uniqueness of Salud. Uh, what was your impression of it when you first heard about? It, what was your impression of of it in relation to sort of Oregon's industry? I mean, to us, it's always seemed very. It, it's always seemed very. Uh, it, it fits very well in with Oregon's industry. So I'm curious, like, what your impressions were. Uh, you know, to me, it's just. I don't know. I, I, I am daily in awe of the people who founded this industry, um, who, who at a time when they were going to sales meetings with their distributors and starting their presentations by showing people where Oregon was <laughs> on the map, were also thinking about the future of the industry. And so they, they formed a great many forward-looking you know, mm -hmm. uh, organizations. Um, with Salute being, you know, maybe first and foremost among them. Um, you know, and I, I think it, it speaks to the, the values of the people who formed the industry is that they recognized that, that they depended very much on, on the labor of a group of people who, many of whom were itinerant and for that reason didn't have access to health care throughout the year. Um, and who you know wanted to find a way to at least for that period of time while all those workers are in Oregon uh, give them access to good health care mm -hmm. and uh, so I don't know I'm, I'm in awe of the people who, who thought of this idea and I think it perfectly describes the way the, the industry uh, um, aligns its values. So you're considered a boutique winery. Do you have, uh, is this what you want to be? Are you at the size you want to be? Are you, do you have plans to change or grow? We're going to have no. to do this conversation <laughs> a lot. <laughs> we, you're going to come back every year and use this part of the conversation. Yeah. Go ahead. So, you know, with, uh, this, this was the vision for us to be making between five and 7,000 cases a year. Uh, we're there. Um, and um, what our focus is now is to make the wines better and better each year. Um, and to make sure that our wines continue to sort of reflect the place. Mm -hmm. And so when we're making our wines in the Dundee Hills, the Dundee Hills, um, we also lease and farm the Meredith Mitchell Vineyard in McMinnville um, to really um, understand that place as much as possible and to create the very best wine from that site. Um, I think you know where we're growing is uh, like a lot of people here and a lot of people around the world we love sparkling wine so we have a sparkling wine project that we started a couple of years ago um, but I you know I think in terms of um, what we're trying to accomplish it's to you know make sure that we're making the very best wines possible to always show this sense of place um, and I think with the of the sparkling wine, the sparkling, the rosé, the chardonnay, the pinot blanc, the pinot, you know, we're, 
we have a lovely selection of wines um, and things we always want to drink. So I know with that, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah, I think absolutely from, you know, in terms of the size we want to be as a winery, um, we, we very much want to stay in, um, in that kind of boutique range. I'm not really sure exactly what that number is. Um, but there's, there's a point at which it's no longer the, going to provide that kind of lifestyle and enjoyment we got into the industry for, right? Um, in a lot of ways, uh, despite the fact that we work six days a week, um, right. this is a lifestyle business, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's very important for us. If it ever gets to a point where we're thinking about this business only in the ways we thought about our previous corporate careers, then I think it will, it will cease to be what we wanted, we wanted to do. Um, that said, you know, there are some financial realities to, to being in the wine industry, um, uh, not all of which we've sorted out, honestly, you know. And so, for example, we had a very big jump in production between 2013 and 2014, um, and it put us at about 6,500 cases of wine about two years earlier than we wanted to be mm -hmm. there. Um, and so we basically stuck at that point. Um, the, one of the realities of the wine industry is you're always selling what you produced two years ago or three years ago. And so we're now finally to the point where we're making 6,500 cases of wine and have 6,500 cases of wine available for sale. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the decision about whether we get a little bigger or get a little smaller will in some ways be driven by what is it look like when we're making 6,500 cases and selling 6,500 cases? Is that the right place to be in terms of where, you know, we need to be to, you know, to have a, to make a living in the industry. Um, so I think the next, uh, you know, the next time we'll review that question will probably be in a year or two. In addition to Salute, are there other organizations in the wine industry that you've been a part of? Um, yeah, the wine industry, um, Don and I have both been on the board of the Oregon Wine Board and the Oregon Wine Growers Association. Um, and we've both been on the Salud Steering Committee and um, Donna has also been on as the, board. the, the Dundee Hills Wine Growers Association and um, Oregon, Oregon Pinot Camp. Camp. I wasn't going to leave that out. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so we've been fairly involved in the industry and I, I will say that it's, it's one of the things that I think is also pretty special about the Oregon wine industry is, is that, you know, as new people in the industry, people who've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years, um, were very welcoming to us when we said we'd like to be involved. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm not sure that's always the case in, sure. in most industries and in most geographies, uh, but it's, it's definitely true here. Was that a sort of a natural reaction on your part to being in the industry, or was it something you set out to do in order to kind of become part of the community? Well, probably a little bit of both. Um, so when we first moved out here in 06, um, we weren't, we weren't, we were just sort of farming and making wine, and we hadn't opened the tasting room yet. So we definitely had some capacity, and um, and that capacity was used up very, very quickly. So I, I, you know, I think this had been and has been 
an industry where um, there, there has been a group of people that have been driving the industry very successfully for the last 30, and for, 30 or 40 years, and they're now getting to a point in their careers where they're looking to sort of make sure mm -hmm. that there's a next generation of people uh, who sort of share that vision and can help move it forward. So um, I think that need and our capacity and some um, you know, energy and some business background, um, we were, you know, when, when we raised our hand, we were invited in, and then they sort of tested us to make sure that, you know, we weren't going to screw things up and that we were <laughs> good, good industry um, uh, contributors mm -hmm. um, that, um, yeah, that we got involved. And we loved it. I mean, we've, you know, we, uh, I've, Loved my time in the Dundee Hill Wine Growers Association. I loved my years with Oregon Pinot Camp. Um, you know, they were great. They're great organizations that continue to grow and evolve, and it's exciting to be a part of that growth and evolution. Um, and it was also a wonderful way for us, I think, to learn a lot more about the industry too. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that was a great way to describe it. You know, about the people who have been doing this for twenty or thirty or forty years really consciously trying to build the next generation of, of um, leaders in the industry. And the part that I, I think is really needs to be said is, um, that does not mean that any of them have stepped back. <laughs> they are still carrying water for this industry. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, if, you, if you talk to David Adelsheim, every day he is working for the Oregon wine industry, you know, and he's been doing it for 50 years. So um, it's a pretty impressive group of people who mm -hmm. are still doing today what they were doing 50 years ago to try to build an industry. Sure. So a question we like to ask when we have couples is, or the wine industry is notoriously difficult on marriages and there obviously is a long history of, of, bad, of uh, relationships ending in the industry. So I'm curious, coming into it, uh, what were your sort of expectations? What, how did you define roles? How did you set yourselves up to be successful and not at, while working together and also being married? We did not know that it was bad for relationships. <laughs> I know. Yeah, now that you told us that. <laughs> now that we think we about need it. We think this I know. a little bit. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to be blamed for anything. <laughs> I'm kind of freaking out right now. Uh, There's also a number of marriages that have thrived. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why we're asking, we like asking that question. So, what's your secret? Uh, Donna has a high tolerance for, for pain. pain. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, that's, and, and poor taste in men, I think, is the Oh. Um, I, you know, I, certainly the fact, you know, as Donna said, we'll, we'll celebrate our uh, 34th anniversary in September. Um, and clearly we hadn't thought about the wine industry when we got married because we would never have chosen an anniversary during harvest. Um, we have not celebrated an anniversary in 12 years. Um, but I think the fact that we had been married for over 20 years when we got into the industry probably helped a little bit. You know, I think we had fought all the battles and negotiated all the negotiations and kind of built the foundation for our relationship during that time. So when we got here, um, we were looking at it in the context of a new industry that we didn't know as much about. but. But a lot of the foundational work, I think, was already in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had also worked in the same industry so mm -hmm. for the previous 20 years. Um, and in fact, when we worked in Japan, we worked together. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably a part of what gave us a little bit more comfort is when we were in Japan, we, we worked together. So we knew we could work together successfully. Um, and so that, that helped. Um, 
Yeah. I did, yeah. So Donna, I actually, yeah. at one point, my office was two doors down from Donna's, and um, and she was my client. And so, um, you know, slash boss, I guess. So, um, so that helped, for sure. When we decided to work together, we're like, all right, well, we've done this for three years. We could probably do it for mm -hmm. a while longer. Mm -hmm. So what's in the future for Winderly? Oh, you should answer that. I should answer that. Um, you know, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I really think it's about, um, you know, continuing our quest to make the vineyards as good as possible, to make the wines coming off these vineyards um, as good as possible, um, you know, to make sure that we're, we're providing our guests um, a wonderful experience mm -hmm. when they visit. Um, and to you know continue to grow um, and I you know when we think when I think about growth it's um, it, it's probably a combination of um, you know seeing our seeing our wines um, in more restaurants across the United States mm -hmm. um, growing our wine club um, you know, we were we were getting a, on a little bit of a run, uh, getting into Canada and the UK until the recent tariffs. There's now a great big stop on that for the moment. Um, you know, but to have some um, some spattering of uh, international distribution, um, I think is important, and uh, we'll con we'll continue to do that. Yeah, I think a lot of. The future is just trying to do what we're doing only better, you know. So we'd yeah. like we'd like to be better growers and better winemakers. We'd like to run a better business and be better employers. Um, we'd like to be, you know, better contributors to the industry um, and better stewards of um, you know this place. And um, so I think if we can continue to find ways to do that, then mm -hmm. um, then that will be success. What about the future of the greater Oregon wine industry? What do you see happening in the next, say, decade here? Wow, great question. You know, so the, the industry, in a lot of ways, has never been better positioned. Um, there's, a, there's a, you know, much stronger awareness of Oregon as a world-class wine industry than there was 10 or 20 years ago. And so um, that is really helping. Um, and uh, I think that challenges we're going to be facing in the future um, are going to be the challenges that you see the Napa Valley and Sonoma um, dealing with now is the, the industry, uh, for all the positive things it brings to communities, um, also brings a lot of, uh, brings some negative things. We bring traffic and, um, and things like that. And so I think we need to figure out over the next decade how do we continue to be good neighbors uh, in this industry? Um, and, um, and not just in the industry, but good neighbors to our neighbors who are not in the industry mm -hmm. and make sure that we don't, we don't hurt the quality of life they moved here to experience. Um, so for me, that's a, that's a big quest over the next you know, several years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the industry itself is positioned really well for the future. Yeah, in, in terms of reputation, um, I, I think we're positioned very, very well. Um, the quality of wines keep getting better. Um, the awareness of wines is, um, is growing. Um, you know, there, when you ask people why they haven't tried Oregon wines at this point, it's mostly because they haven't been able to get access to them. So I think one of the 
you know, opportunities that we continue to have is how do we more successfully get our wines out into distribution mm -hmm. so more people have an opportunity um, to try them in a space that's getting ever more crowded. Um, but that still is the number one reason why most people haven't tried our wines or don't drink them regularly mm -hmm. is they just can't get access to them. So that should be, for the most part, a good problem to have and for the industry to solve. Um, I think one of the other um, things we've got to be on, we've got to be sensitive to, is the industry is growing tremendously. When Bill and I came in, came here in 2006, I think we were winery number 345 is our bonded winery number, and there's now 750 wineries in Oregon and another 62 waiting for approval um, at the TTB. So by the end of the year, we could easily be over 800 wineries. And so I think part of the other thing we all want to be cognizant about is um, how do we absorb and integrate those other wineries um, successfully? Mm -hmm. And so how do we keep the collaboration and the learning um, and the sense of community mm -hmm. um, when we're talking about 800 to 1,000 wineries in the same way that the founders were for the first three or 400 wineries? Mm -hmm. Is you know How do you keep everyone engaged at the same level? and um, you know, sort of re thoughtful and respectful about what's made this place so special mm -hmm. um, so that we don't screw it up in the next decade. Do you sense that it's still a small industry or is it, has it gotten to be a medium to big industry? Hmm. I think it depends how you, how you think about it. Um, you know, certainly from the outside looking in, you know, 700 plus wineries is not a small... Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, is the is it still is Oregon wine industry still a small industry or has it grown to a medium to large industry? Yeah, I I, I think from the if you were outside looking in, you'd say it looks like a pretty large industry. You know, 700 plus wineries. Um, the most recent economic study, you know, shows 5.6 billion dollars of economic impact in the state. Um, that's uh, certainly not a small number. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at the amount of wine we produce, we produce about 1% of the fine wine um, sold in this country. And so from that perspective, we're relatively uh, small. Um, I, I feel like we still have all the attributes about the industry that we liked when we came. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it is still collaborative. People are still working together. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, as Donna said earlier, it's really important that we continue to build the successive generations of leadership. You know, so I think it's incumbent upon uh, Donna and me and others who are involved in the industry to identify the people who are joining the industry now, mm -hmm. who might want to be part of it, um, and give them, you know, find opportunities for them to to help move the industry along as well. Sure. Do you have any do you have any concerns about? the rate of growth or the the way in which it's growing in terms of outside influences onto the state obviously you guys are outside influences yourselves at one point but uh with the money coming in from california and from france is that a concern of yours oh i think it goes back to what i had talked about a little bit earlier is how do we best integrate those folks into um an an oregon way of working together mm -hmm. um and i think as long as we're successful doing that we should be fine i mean i think um the influence of the Burgundians can be very helpful from a marketing standpoint. Um, it, it provides even a greater level of, um, uh, what word am I looking for? Uh, 
panache. No, that's not the way I hate Le that legit word. Legitimacy. legitimacy to why this is a great place to grow Pinot Noir. Um, so I think that's uh, terrific. Um, and so I think it's really just incumbent upon all of us is to make sure that we, we continue to work together collaboratively um, as we move forward. Yeah, I think the, the people who have entered the industry to this point have, have, um, have been good citizens, I, I would call mm -hmm. it. You know, they've, they've reached out to the industry. They've been very open about what they want to do, what their plans are in the industry. Um, you know, they're creating Oregon brands. Um, mm -hmm. And I think all of that's very positive. Um, and honestly, as Donna said, they, some of them have marketing muscle far in excess of anything the rest of us have here in Oregon. So, so that's a very positive thing for the mm -hmm. industry. You know, I think more and more people will know Oregon and will know that Oregon is a place that routinely makes exceptional wines. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for someone entering the industry today? And that can be at any level of the industry. You get a sarcastic comment in your head. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't have a sarcastic comment. Um, I continue to think it's um, it's an it's an exciting business. So I think it depends on where you come in. So I think of a lot of people who um, I think it's a very exciting and interesting sales career. I mm -hmm. think it's a very exciting and interesting marketing career. Um, I think wine as a product in a category um, is interesting and compelling and and I think there's a lot of new ways that we can bring product to market and introduce the product to consumers and to the trade. Um, so I think if you're looking at the wine industry from that perspective, I think there's tons of opportunity mm -hmm. and it's really, really interesting. Um, I think if you're coming in and you're coming in as a grower, um, I think there's probably still a lot of opportunities out there and still a lot of probably great untapped vineyard property that um, we don't know about yet mm -hmm. that um, can produce um, terrific grapes. Um, I think the winemaking and the wine distribution part of it is the toughest. So I think it sort of depends on how you want to come in. I mean, I think we, we understand how to grow grapes here now. We certainly understand how to make great wine. Mm -hmm. um, I think the distribution part is, you know, continues to be one of the, the toughest areas. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'll just speak to the people who come in as owners mm -hmm. of, of wineries. Um, I think you need to be really honest with yourselves about how difficult this mm -hmm. industry is financially. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, if you're starting out small. Our first vintage was 570 cases. And you're building inventory in well in advance of having the ability to sell that inventory. Um, and that's money out of your pocket. You know, that's, that's a lot of money. So, you know, the typical 3,000 case winery at some point will have almost a million dollars of inventory, right? <laughs> so you need to think about that when you're coming into the industry and really be prepared for the, for the long haul. And you, I think you just need to be able to convince yourself that it's much, it's going to be much more difficult than you think it is. You know, it just, it really is going to be a, a long slog mm -hmm. uh, for that reason. Uh, that said, I think the industry, the Oregon Wine Board and the Oregon Wine Growers Association now have started to produce some tools that will make it easier for people entering the industry to do those kinds of, you know, what if scenarios or 
understand what the you know what the compliance requirements are, mm -hmm. so that when when you do if you are thinking about entering the industry, you get a much more realistic view of mm -hmm. of um, what it looks like and you know and uh, what your what your contribution is going to need to be along the way. That's all the questions that we have planned for you. Is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to add here at the end? I, no. I'm just saying, you no. know, we, we've been doing this for 12 years now, and um, it's... 13th vintage in the field. 13th vintage right now in the vineyard, and um, it's as uh, compelling and as enjoyable an industry now as it was when we got here, so Great. Uh, we're still having fun. Excellent. Thank you both so much Thank for your you. time and for your answers. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Go ahead and stop the recording. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.